Yeah, so uh, uh, what I will talk about today is how we drive financial performance in, uh, in the new structure. And uh, I have to say that in the new structure, we really have a lot of new opportunities for driving uh, financial performance. What you will see from today is that we have good opportunities for driving more growth in service, like Thomas showed, and we can measure uh, that at a more detailed level. Uh, we can measure more in more granularity how we drive margins in the specific areas. Uh, and also, <clears throat> the new organization gives us a lot of opportunities to drive up more efficiencies and make certain that we can keep our SGNA cost uh, stable even when the top line grows, and that should give us operating leverage. So, for getting from the profitability level we are at today into where we want to be in the medium and long term, it's all about growth in service, it's about operating leverage, and about, it's about making more money in each offering that we sell. And what I'll show today is uh, how we deliver on that. So the new uh, organization that we implemented roughly a year ago have given us a lot of new data that we can use to run the business, and I'll give you some examples of that. We can do more benchmarking. In the new organization, we have a more simplified uh, organizational structure, and there we can implement the uh, simplified footprints where we basically consolidate things. Um, back office efficiency, we'll talk about that. And last but not least, uh, how we drive cash in the company. So here we have uh, the old structure and the new structure. In the old structure, if we take an example here, if you take this, uh, the cement business, this was primarily big projects in cement. In the old days, or in the old way of working, we did not have regional uh, measurements on this. So basically, this was global uh, performance in terms of capital projects in cement. In the new way of working, we have split that out. So now we measure it on how much money do we make by region in this area. And it gives us a lot of opportunity to really benchmark all regions and make certain we drive in all parts of the business. We also had a country structure where basically... Uh, we could only consolidate at a country level. Now we've moved that to the regional level, and we'll give you some examples of how that works. And we had sales forces that basically covered the cement, the customer service, the minerals, and the product companies. And there it was difficult to get synergies out between them. But now you have implemented that as a structure where basically the sales force in a region are working together as one team. And you'll see from uh, Dian's presentation how that is giving us a lot of benefits. I will focus primarily on, uh, on what you can say, the regional, how we manage these, uh, and how we, from uh, the common functions, so in procurement uh, and IT, are supporting uh, uh, across the two industries. So what we have done when we implemented the new structure was to basically take all revenue streams and uh, put them into uh, different order types that had commonalities across the two industries, if you look at the service part, uh, the service part is to a very large extent driven by the regions. And you can see we have four categories of business. Spare parts, wear parts, which can be very high margin. We have service and upgrades, which has a lower margin. So by splitting up the whole revenue and order intake into these categories, it enables us to benchmark, are we making, increasing our spare parts margins all the time, or is that uh, decreasing? So now we have granularity by region on what we make on the various categories. It also enables us to see how we're performing on, uh, on working capital, where if we grow in projects, that comes with very, very little working capital and often negative, whereas if we grow in spare parts, that comes with inventory and high margins, and therefore it drives up the working capital. So the new way of working have given us some opportunities to really focus on 
what are the value streams we have in the company and how can we support the different value streams. And when we talk about uh, uh, procurement and other things, you will also see that procurement have been designed to support these different types of businesses. As an example, in projects, there is commonality in the way we work in cement and mining. And of course, you can take synergies out between the two and make certain that you have a really fit-for-purpose uh, procurement organization that uh, serves the both of them. And here is just an example. If you look at how we benchmark the regions, we split uh, the order intake into service and capital. And what is really important is that the service business have to grow in all regions all every year. And of course, that's maybe easier said than done. But before, when we did not separate out service as much, if you got one big capital order, of course, you could uh, uh, get away with not performing on service. This new structure makes us, enables us to really say, in all the regions, you have to get more order intake from service, and we can benchmark that across the regions. And also, in some regions, we see that we have a high market share. In other regions, we have a low market share, and we can set targets. So in the regions where we have a low market share or a low share of wallet, we can give targets that are higher to these regions than to the regions that have a high market share. At the bottom, you see capital orders for the seven regions are very volatile. So... It's really important when we benchmark the different regions that we strip out capital performance from the annual performance measurement because if you get one big project, you could really do well in one year and then the next year you will look quite poor because there was no opportunities in the market. So what we're doing here is that the capital order business is executed by the two industries so that we make certain that we have global competences and we have, uh, what you can say, a pool of, empl uh, uh, of employees that can service all the seven regions and we get the critical mass in here. So this has helped us a lot in terms of benchmarking uh, the regions and make certain we drive service performance in particular and ensure that we can have the right uh, staffing level for, for the capital orders. We have the same uh, granularity on, on contribution margin where we both on the orders we book and the orders we execute, uh, so on the revenue part, can see what is the margins in the seven, six categories for all the regions. And there say, are we uh, under pricing pressure in certain regions or, or some regions uh, increasing prices and, uh, and making more of, of what they do. So a lot of opportunity to, to drive performance. So what is the, the overall business? We have the two main PLs, which is uh, the uh, cement and mining PL. They are the sum of the seven regions. So when you see uh, Dian's presentation uh, in a little while, he is one of the regions, so he has a responsibility to drive uh, sales in both uh, cement and mining. But they roll up into the two, uh, two main uh, P&Ls we have in cement and mining, and of course the group, uh, the group KPIs. The main KPI for the group is order intake, EBITDA, and, and cash flow. And where we measure the regions, they have targets on, on service and uh, separate targets on, on capital, so that we can really make certain that there is service growth in all the regions. And of course, we have working capital by all the regions, and we can ensure that there are targets for, for the regional SGNA costs, so they drive efficiency in that too. As you saw, we focus more on what kind of uh, business do we use. So um, we split out projects, which is a different skill set than if you do aftermarket. And in procurement, a couple of years ago, we presented that we have implemented category management. That has, of course, led to a lot of uh, savings from uh, combining all the, the global uh, procurement we have into the categories and make certain we have good agreements with, with suppliers. 
The next step we take in, uh, in procurement is to make certain that we have specific dedicated resources who can support the two industries in the different types of business they do. If you look at the product line procurement, what is that? That is a function that supports the PLM in the two industries to drive lower standard cost of the products we have. So when, uh, as an example, in cement, where we have done a lot of uh, work on, uh, on value engineering and setting up a more efficient uh, uh, procurement, there we work with uh, standard suppliers and really modularizing our, uh, our way of working so that we have parts commonality at different, uh, across different uh, products. That's one set of skills. Uh, project management in procurement is something where you have people who are really good at buying for projects. Um, they, of course, use product line procurement to, uh, to buy for the products. So all the standard products that is in the project will be done by the first bug. But in, uh, in big projects, you have a lot of steel, which you don't, you don't buy from, uh, from standard suppliers. So we have a set of suppliers that we use uh, more regional and where we can really go out and, uh, and go for really low-cost uh, sourcing, for ex as an example, steel structures. Aftermarket is a, a separate skill set where it's all about speed and agility and how we can support uh, with uh, quick quotes for, for the business out there. So the next evolution in our procurement efforts is to build on category management and the efficiency and this to, we have to support the various uh, offering types we have in the business. And here is an example of uh, one of the efficiency levers we have. We have a big uh, assembly center in China, in Qingdao. What we have done over the last uh, number of years is we've uh, moved 30 products from around the world into this assembly center. Uh, and you saw in the announcement that we'll have more footprint optimization as part of the business uh, improvement program. This is by moving some of the products we have in smaller centers around the world into this facility. The benefits of having it in, in Qingdao is it's a place where there is a huge base of suppliers very close by who have a lot of manufacturing capability. And with our ambition of being asset light, that of course enables us to move, uh, what you can say, equipment manufacture to, to China. And then we assemble it in our center, but we outsource the manufacturing to sub-suppliers. And there's a whole range of, uh, of efficient suppliers just around this uh, facility. So this is one of the really big enablers we have for driving uh, cost out of our supply chain. Digital is the big theme today, and uh, here is just an example of what we do and how that helps finance in driving uh, the various parts of the business. The product knowledge we have in the two industries and the regions, together with the connected products that you will see examples of, as well as the analytics we're building up in digital, gives us better leads in terms of what customers need what and when they need it. That enables us to forecast and that basically gives us uh, some data insight into how much should we grow in the various parts of the business and what do we need to have in our inventory. So digital also helps, what you can say, finance in driving uh, more performance because we have better data to actually uh, uh, support the business in uh, driving inventory as well as growth. One of the things we have done, uh, and here we have an example from procurement, one of the initiative, uh, efficiency initiatives we've delivered in procurement is that we've taken a lot of the procurement that before was sitting around the world and moved it into our shared service center in Chennai. What we're now doing is we have taken uh, robots in that will basically automate a lot of these processes where instead of having uh, people typing in the, uh, the purchase orders and going into all the systems, we have uh, bots that do all this work and we process more than 10,000 lines by 
dots at this point in time, and it's a number that increases uh, all the time. So that gives us a lot of efficiency and actually a lot of speed, because these uh, bots, they, uh, they never sleep, and they just continue to work. And then we can take our colleagues and add them into where you need uh, skills. In finance, we also use bots. There we also have a lot of employees in, uh, in the shared service center. At, we are now at 20 people we've taken out from our shared service center by using bots and automating uh, standard processes. So the next evolution in our shared service center is really we've taken a lot of the standard work, moved it into our shared service center, and because it's repetitive tasks, a lot of it, we can use uh, bots to actually automate some of these uh, jobs away. How do we drive efficiency in the in back office? On the chart here, you can see how big a percentage of our global revenue is on our core ERP platforms, Epicor and Oracle. Um, and as we move up this uh, list, it enables us to move more work to our shared service center and automate them. And it gives us a lot of better data to actually um, support the business with uh, relevant information. So what we do is we have global uh, cost owners. It could be finance, it could be procurement, it could be HR, where we have a person who is globally responsible for all the functional costs in this area. They can then optimize across uh, industry, region, and group. So even though we have different organizational units, there are some people who look across. And we use the shared service centers and centers of excellence and bots to drive uh, cost out of these uh, various groups. In the regions, we are also driving cost out because before we had country structures, now we have regional structures. Um, and I'll take North America as an example. Here we've taken six uh, different ERP systems and moved all the entities into one. Uh, so Mexico, Canada, and the majority of US is now on one ERP platform. Uh, and there will be more entities coming on in 2020. So basically you take a whole region and try to consolidate everybody onto one platform. That means you can have one finance team that does reporting. You can have one treasury person. You can consolidate order handling and procurement and so on and so forth. So this is one place where we uh, have a good lever to, to actually dive uh, cost out of the business. If you look at admin cost, here's uh, what we've done over the last couple of years. You can see we've taken uh, quite a bit of uh, admin cost out. And you also see what is it as a, cost, uh, as a percentage of, uh, of revenue. And this is a very important lever in terms of us getting our profitability up. We believe we can actually grow the business a lot without increasing our admin cost. And the reason why we can do this is, of course, that we try to manage it independently of the revenue. We know we have to invest more in digital. We're rolling out ERP. Initially, that gives extra cost, but afterwards, it saves us a lot of money. And then uh, site consolidation, which um, you will hear more about as part of the business uh, improvement program, will, of course, also help us in admin cost. In sales cost, this is an area where the focus is not to reduce it all the time. What we really want to achieve in sales is to maximize uh, our business and really grow as fast as we can. You will see from Dian that we are investing uh, quite a bit of money into growing sales people where we don't have business today. So you'll see a couple of good examples of that. That drives up the costs. On the other hand, Dian and Manfred uh, both have technical support people that can support all the six, uh, seven regions. So basically, we don't need technical support in all regions that can be delivered by the industries and thereby give us some scale benefits. And then, of course, we have the shared service centers who's also supporting uh, uh, the salespeople with, uh, with quotes and other uh, admin tasks. So that's also an efficiency lever we have in the sales cost.
free cash flow. Um, it is a big uh, focus for us, and uh, what I'll show you in the coming slides is uh, it's just a few examples of how it actually happens in uh, in FL Smith, um, and it's a clear focus for us to uh, to get uh, the cash conversion up. Here, the first thing is just um, on the investment side. You can see that over the last many years, we've had uh, uh, investments that have been less than depreciation on the, on the left-hand chart. Um, we are an asset light business. We have a low level of in-house manufacturing, so the need to have big investments is not as big in our company as it may be in other companies that have more in-house manufacturing. Uh, on the, the other chart, you have what is our amortization compared to our capitalizations. And you can see, uh, while we have been in a difficult period of time, we have really focused on not investing or not capitalizing R&D uh, and IT investments and we've got a fairly strong track record of not capitalizing a lot compared to where we are on the amortization line. So uh, this has been a clear priority for us. As we go forward, our ambition is to keep uh, investments below uh, depreciation and amortization. But of course, um, if we have promising investments, it could be more investments in uh, rapid oxygen leaching or dry stack tailing, something like that. It may lead to increases in uh, capitalizations. But at this point in time, we really want to, to manage this very tightly. We are in project business, and in projects, uh, that has a really big impact on both the way we uh, generate revenue and the cash position we have in the company. We get a lot of questions around how this actually works in FL Smith. So this could be any industry that generates, that has big projects. So it's not FL Smith unique. This is basically... Uh, how big projects are being run. So if we start uh, at the left-hand side of the chart, uh, we of course have the bidding phase, where uh, before we actually get any orders, uh, you cannot see it in our financial uh, numbers, we only have costs. Then we get the order, that means we get cash in, and we have order intakes in our books. Um, then we have the engineering phase, which is really where a lot of our colleagues are very, very busy. It's in the beginning of the project, uh, then it moves into the procurement phase, where we're uh, starting to procure all the assets from our sub-suppliers. That's the phase where we really generate a lot of revenue, but actually the work in FL Smith is not as big as it is in the, uh, the, the first part of the, the project. Once we're done with the procurement and supplying all the equipment to site, you have erection and installation, and then lastly we have commissioning, and then once the customer takes over the project, we go into the warranty period. When we had the third quarter announcement, we had uh, some extra cost, and that was basically, to a large extent, in, in the last phase, where uh, some projects uh, dragged out in the commissioning phase, and therefore uh, we had extra cost, Sorry. And, um, and also some of the milestones uh, slipped, and therefore we didn't get the, the payments in from these customers. But basically this shows you how it, uh, the, the revenue is generated in the company, and how the cash position is. What's important to say is, of course, that we start out by being quite cash positive on projects, and then as we move through the project, the cash positiveness is lower and lower as we move to the end of the project. So we are most cash positive in the beginning of the projects. We've also had quite a few questions around warranty provisions, and what we'll just show here is how it actually works. Additions in warranties is generated in proportion to the revenue we generate. So basically, um, 
for a certain type of project, we estimate how much have the historical uh, need for provisions been on this particular project or a type of offering. And then we will use that percentage to actually build up a warranty provision. And that works completely in parallel with uh, the revenue recognition we have. Then once we go into uh, the warranty period, once we've handed over the project and there's no more work going on on this particular project, then we have a period of time where we have the warranty provision on our balance sheet. If there is a, a claim from a customer, we will have used provisions. And then once we go out of the warranty period, we will reverse whatever warranty periods, uh, sorry, uh, provisions that are left on the balance sheet. So this is how uh, the warranty, uh, warranties work in, in F.L. Smith and other companies. Supply chain financing is also something where uh, we've had quite a few uh, questions to it. Uh, and what I'll show you here is uh, the historical figures as well as how it works. Our program is uh, now around a billion and it has not moved a lot over the last couple of years. What it does is it basically uh, enables uh, our suppliers to get the cash up front or uh, the cash once it's, uh, the invoice is approved rather than waiting the 90 days. It's a loyalty program to the suppliers. So actually, for us, it's important to be seen as a very good customer for the suppliers because in certain periods, uh, we will be competing with other uh, customers of theirs about who gets capacity. And we really want to be uh, a key customer of our suppliers. So this is a loyalty program where they know that if they sell to us, they will get the cash earlier because they can participate in our supply chain financing program. So the program in total is about a billion. Uh, but the billion, if we stop the program tomorrow, we will not have a billion less, uh, what you can say, uh, we would not have a billion more working capital. We would have roughly 400 million more working capital because we would not go from, let's say, 150 days down to zero days payment terms. We would go from 150 down to 90 days payment term. So the impact on our balance sheet is roughly 400 million. If you look into how, much, how big has the impact been on the cash flow in a given year, uh, then you can see that it's been fairly low for the last couple of years. We had a big effect in 2016, but now with a mature program, the impact is a lot lower than it was in the early years. And here we just show the maturity profile on uh, our debt facilities. Uh, we have just recently extended our, our big club deal with our core banks. So we have now... Uh, the majority of our funding expires in 2025. Uh, and here you can see the good group of banks we have. Uh, and we are quite happy to everyone that you signed up to this new facility. Uh, all the banks are here today, so, uh, so you'll find them around here. We have two extension options. So basically, it's 2027 before we, uh, we have to go out and renew that facility again. So how do we get to higher profitability? We had a quarter three where we had some cost overruns of 70 million. We've explained that and uh, Manfred will give you more details on how we address this going forward. In the, when we look into our backlogs, we have had more material handling orders plus we have the impact from lower profitability of some of the projects we have in our backlog. That will give us roughly 1% less EBITDA in 2020 in the mining business. We had some underabsorptions. What are we doing to improve our profitability? First of all, as Manfred will uh, talk a lot more about, is we will consolidate our project business into fewer centers. What we realize is that we have too many places where we do projects that gives us some challenges in terms of competences as well as 
balancing the workload in, in terms of the execution. We will do uh, a business improvement initiative where we will consolidate more. You saw the picture from, from China where we have an assembly center. We will move more products into that assembly center. We talked about um, footprints. There will be more uh, center, uh, sites that will be closed and we will consolidate at a regional level. And then, of course, uh, what was also happening is if you look into our order intake and service year to date and compare that with revenue, you can see that we have roughly had 450 million more order intake than we've had revenue. And of course, that points into a better mix as we move into next year. And how do we get to the higher level of uh, EBITDA margin? You will see from uh, basically all my colleagues that service will have a big priority in terms of uh, what we do going forward. So we'll get more growth from from service, will uh, recover in the mining capital business, go back to the, uh, the level of margins that we should have. And then you'll also see that there are opportunities to grow the top line uh, across the business. That extra top line will give us operating leverage because we'll keep a very tight lid on our SGNA costs. And then, of course, we have efficiencies we can take out in terms of footprint and the scale we have. So that is basically the key things that will really drive the increase in EBITDA in the coming years. So that was basically the messages uh, that I wanted to present to you today.